What do you know about that, man? <laughs> That was pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and born on Fourth of July is good. So out there has been, and risky business was big when I was in high school. Top Gun, yeah, Top Gun was great. The original Mission Impossible's, mm-hmm. those were all good. Yeah, but anyway, Lee, what do you say we get the podcast started? Cool. All right. Well, I'm Chase Winnegar, host of the podcast. Lee McClellan, co-host. Yeah, I'm. I'm back after a hiatus, uh, unplanned. I wonder, uh, do you want to tell people where you were at all? Or, I mean, well, I was in this place where ambulances pull up and stuff, and then you have people poke and prod you about every hour, right. even though they tell you to rest. <laughs> 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 and I have to have a, go back to another one of those places and have a procedure done in a couple of weeks, but it's no big deal. Just, you know, little stone in the wrong place. I just got to have it pulled out. Well, no big deal. The good news is getting it figured out, Lee. Yeah. And I lost 20 pounds. So, <laughs> oh, and I had the best cleanse. Like all those people spend all that money. You don't have to do that. Just starve for a week and drink a lot of water. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm glad you're back. Yeah. And I feel, uh, I'm feeling much better. We, I, we did do one podcast while you were gone. No, da- David Baker came in and talked cool. to me because we wanted to talk about the Elkhorn Dam removal. And then it, this kind of ties into you being gone, too. One thing. That, I missed all the cool stuff. Well, I mean, there'd be plenty more. Yeah. But David Baker, he told me while he was here that uh, the agency just got new certified scales for each fisheries division. Oh, yep. So they could do um, state record fish without, you know, because people don't want to go to a post office or a Kroger deli mm-hmm. to have and a And some fish places, wave. like the, the guy who caught the state record, Sauger, they wouldn't let him. Yeah. Costco was the only place that let him. People are like, no, we don't want wild fish on our scales so now each of our regions mm-hmm. has a certified scale and the way i understand it we can sometimes bring that to to the people as well we, we did that's I what i there. was getting at <laughs> so the very first day you were back in the office i, I caught <laughs> you walking down the road i said lee what are you doing you said oh and you state record tail cat and so i was really looking forward to hearing how that went you want to give a quick rundown well um and, and you know p- people get excited and these were really good people he caught a big catfish in a private pond uh, in, in, I believe, Trimble County. And uh, they weighed it, but not on scale, certified for trade, and it weighed over 32 pounds, which is the state record channel caught in the Ohio River and, uh, in June or May of 2004 up in Boyd County in the upper part of the river here. So they call Cabela's, and they bring the fish to Cabela's and put it in their quarantine tank behind that big tank you see at the Cabela's in Louisville. So we go up there, and um, you're going to take photos, and potentially and brought, you're thinking I got to write an I article, got a article, a press release, take some good photos. I'll have to send these out to a lot of people. And unfortunately, this this happens all the time. Uh, it was actually a blue cat, a blue cat, and just a baby of that. And uh, <laughs> and on on we got to try out. For the first time, Jeff Crosby and all, we got to try out the new certified scale. They're really nice, and it weighed 31.58 on yep. the certified scale. Um, so a little bit of a, of, a, of a false alarm there. But, you know, I, I felt for him because the whole family was excited. The father was excited. The brothers, uh, I believe mom was there, and they were all really excited. So there's two takeaways for this yeah. for me. One, we got the certified scales, and we're putting them to use. And, for... and, they're, and they're very portable and nice. And two fish you know mistaken id or state records in general that's something people might might get confused about so, so if somebody wants the fish id how, do you have a page on the website mm-hmm. i know you're the state record fish yep. person for the state and i've got the rules written down here um i i should have written down which page number in our guide mm-hmm. and it's on the website or you can go to walmart or wherever you buy your most places that sell fishing tackle have them 
And I believe they're like on page 15 or 16. There's excellent pictures that Rick Hill painted of fish. And they aren't just paintings that you, people, might, the, pe- people might think, well, why would you paint a picture? Why wouldn't you just take a picture? Well, Rick's paintings are, are so detailed. Yeah, more I mean, detailed than a picture in a way. Down to the number of scales, down to the number of fins and everything. Everything is perfect. He is, he is meticulous about making sure it's completely accurate mm-hmm. and we have little hints to show like the difference between a small mouth and a, and a spotted bass you know the jawline the this so there's there's what they call moristics um that that tell um what the the ways you can look at different aspects of the fish and say oh okay oh that's a rainbow instead of a brown trout okay oh that's a blue one of the differences between a channel cat and a blue is the the fin behind the belly um, is on a blue, much more rounded. On a blue, or I mean, on a channel, it's much more rounded. On a blue, it looks like a hair comb. Yeah. And it's going to have a blue's going to have over thirty-two spines. So we had the father count the spines, you know, just make sure he was satisfied, and it was like thirty-three, I believe. Yeah. So that made it definitely a blue cat. So there, that page in the guide can be really helpful for somebody just trying to ID a fish in general, mm-hmm. even if it's not. A state record fish. Maybe they're worried about uh, regulations because, you mm-hmm. know, there are different regs for channels and blues mm-hmm. and, and all fish species. So maybe if people don't know that that exists, it does. It's in the guide. It's in the in the print version. But you can also get to that on your cell phone pretty easily. Yeah, go to fw.ky.gov. The guide's in a PDF form, and I think there's another way of getting to it as well. And that's where your state record fish info is, too. Yeah. And so, and let, and I, I wrote that down. So um, as, a, as a general rule, first... Um, have the fish weighed on a scale certified for trade. That's when, and if you think it's closer, hand scales and it's over, um, we now have the certified scales with each with each district. So they could bring it, but um, you need to have three witnesses verify the catch, and they need to be willing to sign the state record application. If you think you've had it, then contact a KDFWR fisheries biologist. They're on page 28 of the current guide and have them verify the catch again. Mm-hmm. This this would have made a little bit of a difference in the in the situation we just talked about, mm-hmm. and um, after that, um, then it'll come to me and I will certify it and I'll send out the stuff, and uh, everybody's happy. But we always have the right if there's any kind of I mean we've had several where there's been some taint, we've had several where there was some controversy. I don't want to get into them, but uh, we we don't have to certify it if there's any kind of whiff of impropriety. 98% of them are fine, but there have been a few people that have had a little some questions. Plus, if you catch it with a jug, with a noodle, with a trot line, with um, um, by bow fishing, by gigging, or snagging, or a limb line, or noodling, none of those are eligible. It yeah. has to be hook and line, rod and reel. Okay. Well, I'm perfectly fine with all that. Yeah, me too. I, I like how it sounds. I just wanted to hit off that, hit that up front because one, it's how you got back here. That was your very first day back work, so I mm-hmm. thought it'd be a nice transition. <laughs> yeah. And then also, you know, because that happened to those people, I was thinking that would probably be likely to happen to a lot of people. Oh, it, it has. So one we, time, a, a guy thought he caught back before we recertified the state record smallmouth as now the world record during that controversial time, and I'm glad we reinstated it because the evidence, and you and I have met Mr. Hayes, but a guy weighed a smallmouth, but he didn't tear the weight. He put a metal basket no. <laughs> at the grocery store and didn't tear out the... 
He did so zero. It weighed the fish and the metal basket. And he's like, I've got the state record. Yeah. Then uh, then he had to call back. I didn't I didn't tear it out to zero before. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. then it'll be in a nice small mouth that's like six pounds of change. You know, which I would if I caught a six pound, I've caught one I think right at six. But if I caught a six or better, I'd be really happy. But it's not oh still. gosh, yeah. You know the thing is, uh, as far as zeroing mm-hmm. out scales and all that, I got to think the last time most people probably ever did that was when they were in high school or middle school or something, mm-hmm. chemistry or biology, mm-hmm. and having to uh, zero zero out your scales before you weigh your grams. Yeah, yeah. It's probably a little bit past most people. Yeah. So Lee. Yeah. Let's see. What do I want to get to first? We've done some cool stuff with the TV show since you've been gone. Mm-hmm. One of which. Um, was one of the cooler things I've done with the show. I think it goes in my top five list. Oh, cool. And, you know, that actually after we went and did this, I started thinking about what would my top five list be of my moments with the show, you know, as a producer, as a guy in the field with a video camera, what have been my favorite five moments. But I don't have a definitive list. I probably have three or four. It's always hard to decide on the last one in a list of anything, you know, because mm-hmm. then you got that's where you have to eliminate everything else. Yeah. But noodling catfish on kentucky lake was we did that recently and that was really really cool we went with a guy named will brantley do you know him yeah yeah he knew who you were i figured that you might know who he was also he's the digital editor for field and stream and Mm -hmm. outdoor life and realtree outdoors i think i've sent him photos and we've corresponded and stuff together yeah yeah, well he uh we we were just talking up when we were with him you know just randomly talking about work and the department and and he actually threw your name out there he said lee mcclellan and i asked him if he knew you and he said just through work and just through articles that you've written and things like that cool but he was really really good and we got out there and i mean it was really it was kind of like i expected but at the same time, it was kind of a shock. And the the number one most amazing thing, and Chad will tell you this too, was, well, for one, channel cats bite much harder oh, I know. than a flathead. I mean, apparently a, a 10-pound channel cat, you'd rather get bit by a 50-pound flathead just because of how their jaws work. Did you wear gloves or did you bare knuckle it? We, we wore gloves. I only got bit by one fish because obviously I was working. Yeah. But uh, I got bit by a channel cat, and uh, Chad says that there's no comparison between the channel cat and the and the flathead but number two we were catching these fish under concrete they were for the most part under washouts and concrete that was in the in the lake that these people had found they weren't in boxes or anything oh wow and you could be above water and somebody could be six feet below the surface sticking their arm in one of these holes right and so you're you're probably 12 feet away from what's actually going on. You're standing above water, and you've got uh, concrete between you and the fish. You've got all this water between you and the fish. So were they near shore, I suspect? Yeah, for the most part. We caught some offshore. But when that person was in there, and they stuck their hand in there, when that catfish would bite them, you could feel it, and you could hear it. It sounded like you were 20 miles from Fort Knox, and they were shooting <laughs> tanks on Wow, really? Yeah, I mean, you could feel the percussion through your whole body just being in the water close by and it's just all you know when the catfish bites it sucks in all that water oh, yeah. and shoots it out its gills and even you know the smallest channel cat we caught that day an eight pounder so you could you could feel that vibration and that percussion up through your feet and through your whole body and then that's cool we eventually did catch one that was probably about a 50 pound flathead and that one was really deep and i mean you could just hear it boom, boom just biting them over and over so it's kind of it's kind of more of a spectator sport than most people would think because mm-hmm. you would think that you know this well, you've guy's seen those girls gone grabbing and all those oh yeah stuff like <laughs> girls gone grabbing but i haven't seen that lately but well, I, it, I can imagine what it is well, it's, i mean it's 
It is what you think it is, down south and country girls grabbing catfish. So It's fun. I would like to go back and do it again. There's a season for it. June 1st through August 31st is the season. But apparently, you know, there's kind of a hot spot in there when, you know, water hits 80 degrees. That's when they kind of move up into the holes. And then they're there for a few weeks. So really, you know, you have that wide range of a season, but there's going to be a two or three week period in that season at some point that's just better. So it's something that when it comes back around next year, I'll probably look to try to go do. I was out white bass fishing on Taylorsville Lake out of my kayak not too long ago, and a couple guys pulled up and were noodling out there, and they told me to jump in and try to grab one, but none of the boxes they were checking right in front of me had fish in them. So, hmm. But, it, I mean, it, it's it's not something to be afraid of at all. We were out there with a seven-year-old kid, and he was going down there doing it. Well, you know, I went, but they used a different method a couple of times on Rolling Fork River growing up over near Lebanon. Uh-huh with a guy who's passed along a long time ago. His name was Cutter Martis. He was a, uh, um, a barber in Bardstown, and he was one of the last people that would put a warm towel on your face and oh, get yeah? the leather strap out and use the flat-edge razor and give you a shave and uh, shave your neck and then put a hot towel on it. No, I mean, he was old school. But what they would make us do was plug the, in the rowing fork. They were under boulders, and they had a little channel scooted out we would help block one of the escape routes with our feet yeah and then they had a like a tuning fork that they would stick in if they felt it vibrate they knew they had a fish and then they used a meat hook and just hook them they didn't grab them they were older and the grabbing them was beating them up too much yeah i'd say regs might not allow that anymore yeah this was in the early late 70s early yeah i think the regs read that you can you know grab them by hand or with the aid of a handled hook yeah, that's and, what this was. It was a handled hook. These The hooks that we were using when we were at Kentucky Lake, it was basically like a broom handle, mm-hmm. and then with a, a hook on the end of it, but the hook was dulled off. They had actually grinded it down, so you weren't actually penetrating the fish's skin at all with the hook. You were more or less just trying to use that hook to reach in there and grab mm-hmm. like a, a fin or something so you could turn the fish or, you know, flatheads inside their mouth or bottom lip, they kind of have a an actual lip in there. And if you get that hook in a flathead's mouth, you can actually grab a hold without actually punk- puncturing anything or, mm. or, you know, stabbing them in any way. And you can just use that to pull the fish towards you. Well, this was a sharpened meat hook with a piece of, you know, broom handle on top. And, yeah. you know, it's probably eight inches long, but it was a big hook. Yeah. But all those fish went into the skillet. So Yeah, that's uh, that's not we, – we released everything we caught. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those guys made a good point. He said they released 95% of the fish they catch that really the only fish they catch is one that might get injured while being caught. And he said they, they love eat them, you know, oh, but it did. doesn't take a whole lot of flatheads. Fresh catfish is good. Flathead especially. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you just keep one here and there of what you need. I mean, there's no reason to go overboard with it. When flatheads eat, they don't eat detritus. They eat live, a lot of times live fish. Oh, the flatheads? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they're... That's why they taste better. That's what I was kind of surprised <laughs> by. Because, you know, you think of a flathead being kind of that the apex predator of the catfish mm-hmm. right that's how i think of them because yeah, like you too. said they they don't eat things that are dead they they don't scavenge mm-hmm. i mean they will i'm sure yeah. but they for the most part you know hunt live fish just like a muskie or a bass or anything mm-hmm. else is going to they want to eat things that are alive so you think they'd they'd be quicker and they probably are but you would also think they'd have a stronger bite force you know have you ever uh Paid attention, like when you catch a smallmouth bass or something like that, the bite is much different than when you catch a sauger or a saw guy. It seems mm-hmm. like a lot of times a sauger and sauger don't really don't really bite that hard. And that's mm-hmm. Chad's theory is because they have teeth. Yeah, you know they a hybrid striped bass is is trying to 
grab that fish it's trying to eat and not let it go or it's trying to kill it with the bite yeah and those other fish they don't really have to worry about it because they have all the teeth to do it for them so i would just would have assumed that a flathead would have struck harder than a a channel or a blue but that's not the case at all i guess they're just so big they just overwhelm them or Mm -hmm. something like that i'm not i'm not the biologist so i shouldn't talk about it but at the same time it was really cool to see i had a an old acquaintance who would go to laurel and he would catch little bluegill bigger ones he'd throw away like little teeny four and five inch bluegill yeah and he would hook them in the back and he would just cast them with a light weight uh-huh. and let them fall down those bluff walls he yeah. got some beautiful flatheads doing that you know that's definitely in, in the dusk period you know live bluegill is probably the number one catfish bait if i had to guess probably depends on where you're fishing because obviously skip jack or moon are just yeah. a live fish is a really good catfish bait and something that will said when we were out there noodling with him um you know, because we were asking him about the health of the fish, and, you know, uh, he said that, you know, they usually catch the same exact fish in the same exact holes week after week after week after week. So the fish are going back down healthy. But he made a reference to that style of fishing. He said, you know, I got to think that you're probably doing a lot less damage to the fish, or you're risking less damage to the fish noodling them than you are, you know, fishing the live bluegill where they have the opportunity to swallow that hook or mm-hmm, something like that. No doubt. So. You know, if you're wanting to keep fish for the skillet, I don't think it matters. But as long as people, my, my but when fault. I've grabbed, I've grabbed some catfish in those channels. I've had them. Yeah. I didn't have gloves on, and man, it looked like I rubbed my back of my own rough concrete. Yeah, that's. I mean, you also do do that when you go mm-hmm. down there and noodle. You do rub your hand on rough concrete. But I tell you what, Lee, I've ran into several people mm-hmm. lately who have mentioned the podcast to me. Told me they listen. Told me they enjoy. I've been getting more emails too. That I, makes me happy. Actually, when I was. Before you walked in today, I walked outside and I was looking. I saw a mushroom growing through this window right here. And so I walked outside to check out that mushroom and see if I could figure out what it was. And then when I was out there, I heard raccoons scurrying um, uh, in the building above us here. So I was over there listening to the side of the building, listening to these raccoons. And some guy driving by in his truck stopped and said he appreciates podcasts and enjoys what we do. So I'm sure I look like a complete idiot out there just staring (laughs) at the side of the building for no reason. So there's raccoons in the building here? Oh, yeah. We'll get around to that. Yeah. It's not priority. They're not damaging anything that I can tell. They're just in the side. They're not actually in the attic. They're in the area, like, by the gutters. The building's separated like that. Mm-hmm. So it'll Was be fun. Was this also a quail Yeah, pen? this used to be. The building we're in right now it used to be a quail pen when they were doing a lot of reintroduction of quail or quail stocking efforts back in, I think, the 80s. Yeah, well, I mean, it really, I, I, one good thing, we did that 55th anniversary or um, 65th, actually. Um, I got to look at all the old magazines, and they, they started doing that not long after World War II. They started, they built these, and they started yeah. stocking quail. So that's what this building was used for, was it was basically a quail barn. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they converted it to our office, and I hope they got all the, whatever it would be. What What is it? The Histoplasmosis? Histoplasma. Hopefully the histoplasmosis. I'm always scared, because I played in old bourbon distilleries that were full of pigeons growing up, uh-huh. and I fished under bridges. <laughs> I always wonder if I have histo, but... Well, you can still see, so. Yeah, Yeah, no doubt. But all these people, or not all, a lot of the people who have been reaching out lately have been wanting to go kayaking or or stream fishing. One person specifically asked about Elkhorn. Somebody else asked me about Green. And I've pointed all those people towards the Blue Water Trails page. Well, good. And I thought, you know, it might be a good time to remind people, because I I still, even though I've floated Green 20 times in Mm -hmm. the past year, I still, sometimes when I'm trying to plan a trip, I still pull up the map on the Blue Water Trails page 
and look at the different sections, look at the public put-ins and access points, and I pay more attention. I probably use it more for the map than I use it for the fishing tips. Well, I mean, you but, know what but, you're doing. But they're, but they're there, too, if somebody wants to you know, take a look at those. It, it gives you a general idea what fish are there and what their food sources are, which you might want to throw to catch them. But I think that the map with the mileage is the most Oh, use, I agree. And, and we, we keep, if we get feedback from people that, and we look into it and there's a mistake or things change or we keep those updated. I've, I've looked at, I'm not trying to run anybody down, but I've looked at other avenues along those lines and you go there, oh, that access is gone. Oh, they didn't keep up. The, the map's 15 years old. Yeah. And, you know, accesses can be transitory. Sometimes they'll, they'll be around and then land changes or complaints come in and then they poof. So anytime we have anything good or bad, we, you know, we, we make sure to keep the maps updated because people use those. Yeah, all, all they have to do, just I wanted to hit on that real quick because people have been asking, mm-hmm. fw.ky.gov, type in Blue Water Trails in the search tab, and it'll pretty much take you to a list of however many there are, 30 36. or 36. 36. And I hope to add some. Now we're getting in late summer. We're going to do some uh, photo shoots here coming up over the next two months. And now that I like it this time of year because the river is usually predictable and low. Mm-hmm. Nothing worse than going to all the trouble. To, well, it happened to us on the TV yeah. show. Yeah. We expected 340 and we had 2,000. Yeah. So, and then I hope to do two more next year for, for uh, uh, I'm gonna, we take the pictures and then write them over the winter and then we're going to put them in the magazine next summer and probably next fall. You know, so, people don't necessarily need the info as much in the winter, so that's a good yeah. time to make hay yeah spring and spring will. summer and fall is when we use we don't run them yeah, in the get, get the work done then and release them in the spring have them, yeah have them done release them in the spring that's so a good, good plan we're gonna add some more to them and also um on that page if you go to educate or yeah boating canoeing and kayaking the the stream bio I just take to uh, talk to jay harala yesterday and the stream biology has done a great job with the canoeing and kayaking page and they have those stream fisheries page mm-hmm. and i think they've done 17 sections of 14 different streams and they have a lot of the same information, the Blue Water Trails. But the thing I really like is they have pictures of what the put-in and take-out looks like. Okay. And um, they have recommended lures. And they also have fish sampling results of what they found when they did their population sampling. It's a great – that and the Blue Water Trails are on the same page. And it's just a great, great repository for, for people to use. So there's that. You know, well, I appreciate that, Chase. That's yeah. cool. Kind of a reminder, one guy – um, I actually ran into, I went, I was going somewhere, I was going to Cave Run Lake last year after work one day mm-hmm. with Kristen, and so I didn't want to go all the way back to Louisville just to drive to Cave Run Lake, no so doubt. I went, I think I went to the creek and I was, killed some time out there, and then I went to B-Dubs over on the other side of town mm-hmm. to get uh, a bite to eat before we went to Cave Run, and I was sitting there at B-Dubs by myself, and the guy sitting next to me had an iPad with him, and he was watching a, a Kentucky Field crappie fishing segment on his iPad. So, you know, I was kind of debating, do I say something, do I not say something? Eventually, I, you know, I started picking his brain about the TV show, and I, I didn't tell him, you know, I was with the show. I just wanted to get his thoughts on it, you know, get some feedback. And he basically told me, you know, he really enjoyed crappie fishing. And he was one of the fellows that called. So he had started listening to the podcast since, I, since I ran into him at uh, B-Dubs, BW3s last year. And uh, he was one of the fellows who called. If I remember right, he was looking for info on Elkhorn Creek. So uh, I steered him towards the Blue Water trails page and hopefully good. hopefully it gets out there and has some luck it's it's a uh, 304 this morning so it's finally getting back in good shape 304 again. is about perfect mm-hmm. basically if it's 304 right now plan your trip yeah because it's going to be 250 or yeah it'll be 250 tomorrow well then again it's supposed to rain over the weekend i know that's what i was hoping to go sunday but i don't know i'm gonna get out and do something this weekend actually that's what i'll talk to you i've done several things lately i've kayaked green uh probably three or four times since last time i talked mm-hmm. to you 
uh, went out and fished for you know the river two or three times. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chad went with us once, and we got on a topwater bite um, for the hybrids, and it was a lot of fun. Oh, the, oh, in the Ohio? Yeah, we were we were tripled up at one point. Three three fish on at a time, all fishing from the boat. So throwing you know just to walk the dog, czar spook, cool style bait. Any big ones? Uh, I mean five or six pounds. Uh, yeah, still on top, though. That'd be fun. Yeah, nothing huge, but it was fun. I had some stuff written down. One thing I want to get to is the fact that deer season's coming up and uh, some prep. You know, I'm starting to go through my prep work already. Yeah. Or I'm actually a little bit late. I shouldn't say already. I'm starting to go through my prep work, so I thought I'd hit on some of that. Mm-hmm. But a few other pieces of news that we should probably make mention of. One, Elkhorn Dam's gone. I covered that Yay. with David. I'm looking forward to kayaking that section. You know. My buddy went, and it was 2,100 CFS, and some of them had never been in the white water. Oh, gosh. <laughs> he said it, they had a ball. It all went okay, but he said, whoo, it was a hell of a day. <laughs> oh, well, 2,100 on that section is pretty tough. Oh, my God, you're flying. <laughs> yeah, the upper section of the Elkhorn where the dam was that has been removed is the steepest section of the creek. Oh, yes. So it, it, it you know, it flows differently than... The section down there by the hatchery does. Oh, yeah, you know, no it, doubt. It's much steeper, much much faster moving water. And at certain levels, you approach class three plus rapids through there. So yeah, I've been through there a couple times, and I've seen some people flip. I, I flipped. That was the last time I flipped on Elkhorn was actually in that section. Taking a 14-foot boat through, though, because, I mean, you're more streamed out. It's more, you know, skinnier water, and more you've got to be able to be more, a little more maneuverable. That's the last time I flipped was on that section. And you're Hobie? Yeah. Yeah, and we also flipped. We had a 16-foot canoe that day. We flipped both of those boats. It's part of it. Um, our uh, co-worker floated that weekend. He, I think he said several people he saw. He helped a, a couple. They lost their boat. Uh, he said lots of people were getting so in, in trouble. Could be a good time to take the good old snorkel and goggles out to Elkhorn. Heck and, yeah. And uh, snorkel those riffles or the the big flat pools right below a riffle because that's where their stuff's going to end up. So and, and uh, where down below the hatchery too, there's a couple of good spots where things oh, yeah. tend to collect. There's a very good spot below the hatchery. Yeah. We, we found some stuff down there before. Yeah, the way I look at it, you know, you might be going out was there. It still usable? Or oh, was yeah, it was young? a full tackle box. Looked like somebody dumped it the that day. Probably did. It was full of lead heads and stuff. It just filled up with water and it was on the bottom, but it was full of non-rusted hooks and sinkers and all kinds of stuff. Good. Crankbaits. But the way I see it, I mean, yeah, I kind of feel bad for the people who lost it, but if I didn't go out there and find it, it was just going to sit in the creek. Yeah, and get ruined. I don't necessarily want a, a whole box of hooks sitting on the bottom of the creek. You know, no I'll doubt. walk around in. So. Yeah, and step on them. I, did you ever find a rod or reel that are any count? I've never found, I found a Zepco 33 and it was hang, it was hanging from a tree. Where somebody had gone through with it vertically in their kayak, and I guess they got it hung up as they were going through a riffle, and you know they probably didn't know it was going to a mile down the stream. I did talk to one of the uh, guys at Canoe Kentucky, and he found a Loomis rod with a. I mean, he said it was all in all like five or six hundred dollar baitcaster setup he found in the creek, and uh, somebody you know came looking for it. And so he ended up giving it back. Oh heck yeah! He said that he had taken it apart and he completely greased it and cleaned it. He he thought he had himself a really nice new rod and reel. He said about the time he got it all put back together and greased up and lubed up, somebody called the shop and asked if they'd found it. And he just didn't have the heart to. I mean, yeah, it. you could, yeah. So somebody's really looking. Nope. For yeah, it. then you'd feel bad that you'd have bad karma on that rod if you did that. Oh I yeah, think. I can't. You don't want bad juju on the boat. No doubt. Um, now I found some cheapy throwaway spin casts and stuff, but I've not found anything good. Well, you got to keep looking, Lee. Well, they said Denny Crum. Did I ever tell you a story that he flipped at the spot I think you and I both are thinking about? Oh, by the hatchery? Yeah. Yeah, there's a spot there that's made to flip you. Yeah. 
and I have come close to flipping, and just upstream of that, I have flipped. Yeah. Um, and they said that he had like three Legend Elite St. Croix rods on there, and some people who knew about it went down and tried to get them, and they never could find anything. Hmm. Well, so knows. it may have been. Who knows where they ended up. That's why, yeah, by the hatchery, if you do kayak Elkhorn, because that's, remember last time I think you were here for a podcast, I told you about a trip where I went with uh, a buddy and his family mm-hmm. and his mom flipped and ended up going to the hospital because she that's had her That's right, and it was in that area. It was that exact spot. So basically at the hatchery, the creek splits, and there's a right stem and a left stem. And they meet back up probably just two or 300 yards down, but the right stem is really shallow. <clears throat> so a lot of people want to go left, and that's where the better fishing is too, to the left. Yeah, I love. I call that the flat hole. That second one down through there. But it takes a hard left bend, and there's some driftwood and some some debris that's pushed up against that outside bank, and the current's basically trying to push you into that driftwood and that debris. Yeah. So if you hit that wrong, you know it can pin your kayak. And See, flip years you. ago that channel wasn't there. Yeah. It all came together, and then you took a hard. There was a scour hole right there, and then you took a really hard right. And both of them met, and then you had the cross waves. So yeah. a lot of people would flip right there. There's, there's spots. Then it blew out that straight. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've about flipped there myself. That's why you wear a life jacket. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. People yeah. need to wear their life jacket because, I mean, it doesn't. Elkhorn's nice and pleasant, and you're coming down the stretch from Sullivan through, uh, you know, you, from Peaks Mill heading towards the hatchery. It's just flat water, and it's calm, and it's nice as can be. And Some mild drops, but fun. Well, and then all of a sudden, boom, you're at that one spot that can be a real, you know, it's a catcher. And, I, you. you know, I saw a family go through and two of the four flipped right there. <laughs> well, <laughs> it happens, man. That's, that's a, that's oh, and then a, a, uh, two women came through and they flipped. It's a tough spot. So I, we started saying, if you can get right, go right, go right. Don't come this way. Yeah. You either want to go right or hard left because if yeah. you take the left-hand bend, if you go left but you are to the right, it's going to push you into that log jam and you're going to probably flip. So that's what most people do. A couple other things I wanted to hit on real quick. You might know more about these than I do. Um, One, Palmer Road. Yeah. Something we talk about quite a bit in the spring is always... putting in new... uh, Somebody, Mike Harden went down and looked at that the other day. I took pictures of it. Yeah. It's, I actually have pictures on my phone. Did you tell, maybe you told me that you went down and looked at it. Uh, I think several people probably have, but basically the Palmer Road parking lot at Salt River, um, which is probably the most popular spot to, pa- to park during the White Bass Run and fish, they added 20 new parking spots. Good. So, and which is well over double what it was. Let me see, I have this, uh, this aerial view here, Lee, I took this with a drone the other day, but you can see where the truck's parked. That's uh, that's oh, old. Wow. So it's it's over twice the size, probably three times the size. Is the truck now. parked? That's the old one? Yeah. Okay. So the, Wow, it, that's going to be nice. Yeah, it's going to be really nice. So a lot more parking there, which is good for... Good. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure if during hunting season, if enough pressure gets down there to need the extra parking. I kind of doubt it. But uh, during the white bass run, you know, that will be useful because a lot of times people are searching for where to park, especially during the spring turkey season when the river road is closed off because then you can't access the other parking spots yep and that gets full quick so this just gives you an, a spot to park and then you can of course walk up and down the creek and spread out there's plenty of room so mm-hmm. there's that the palmer road lot is uh over twice the size now that it was so that's one thing to get to two elkhorn dams gone three life jacket loaner stations yes do you have any information on these? Yes, uh, they just had a groundbreaking, I believe, yesterday Beaver. at Beaver. Yeah, Beaver Lake. Did that you was go? A, that was the first one. I did not go, but uh, it what it was a ribbon cutting ceremony. Yeah. So these life jacket loaner stations are essentially just where, if, say, you go boating because everybody has to have a life jacket. Yeah. You have to have a life jacket on your boat. And Readily it, accessible. Which for include, every 
Every person. person. Which includes kayaks. Yes. So any vessel on the water, every person that's on that vessel, you have to have a life jacket readily available for those people. And readily available basically means not in a locked compartment, not or, in the packaging still. Or in, in your hole above, you know, your pole storage with the yeah. rubber gasket top. Yeah. That doesn't do you any good either. It probably needs to be somewhere you can just grab, grab in, it in a reasonable amount of time, in five seconds or something yeah. like that. And then, um, of course, anybody under the age of 12 has to have one on anytime the boat's under power. Yep. Those are your life jacket laws. But let's say you showed up at Beaver Lake, Beaver Creek Lake, and you were going to go fishing, but you realized, shoot, I forgot my life jacket, and you don't want to get a ticket, you don't want to get a citation, or you just want to be safe and you don't want to be on the water with that one anyway. Well, this is going to be a loaner station where you could grab a life jacket for free, use it for the day, and then return it when you're done. So basically, it's just a way to make sure that people are, you know, there's really no excuse not to have a life jacket mm. if there's a, a station there that says, hey, take one of these and use it and put it back. So, uh, you know, that's... And, that's and especially in spite of the things we've seen over last year, we've seen a lot of people get into trouble. Yeah. And experienced boaters and experienced kayakers get into trouble, and a lot, 95% of it would have been avoided had they just worn their PFD. Yeah. And you know what, Lee? I'm going to give you some stats real quick. I heard these stats yesterday in a meeting, but I saw an email come through a second ago. Um, you know, we, we were up on the drownings, right? Over yes. the past two years or so, drownings have been ticking up. up. Uh, uncomfortably up. Well, there is a bit of good news. Do you see this email come through yet? No. Fourth of July weekend, which is a three-day weekend, they include and Monday. Normally, and one of yeah, it's one of the worst. Uh, July second, third, and fourth. Um, let's see. Officers performed fourteen hundred nineteen fishing license checks, issued seventy-two citations um, for fishing without a license, and conducted safety checks on several vessels. Ultimately, no drownings over that whole weekend. That's great for the entire state. That is unheard of yeah and they had the information uh i'm wanting to say 36 or arrest room don't you know i shouldn't say it i don't have the number here in front of me but i'm wanting to say 36 arrests were made for here it is boating under the influence and other alcohol and drug related offenses 18 for bui 16 for other alcohol and drug related mm -hmm. offenses um like i said 72 citations for fishing without a license over about you know, over 1,400 fishing license checked and, and boat inspections, but zero. That drownings. is fantastic. It's kind of, I mean. You, Normally there's a couple on July 4th. You don't want to be shocked by good news, you know. No, no it, doubt. it stinks that you would ever want to be shocked by, hey, nobody mm -hmm. drowned over the weekend. But on what was a beautiful hot weekend, you got to think that everybody who mm -hmm. could be at the lake or on the water. That's my brother's pool. <laughs> I, went, I was on uh, and green. Of food. But think about Lake Cumberland or. Or one of the, you know, Taylor, any of the big lakes, they get a lot of traffic. I mean, there are, you know, some serious things going on out there. And just mm -hmm. for, for everybody to have done it safely or for our officers to have been able to go out there and help people do it safely, which is what the BUI, um, mm -hmm. you know, stops are for and things like that. You, you don't want people driving under the influence on the water either. No doubt. Because, I mean, trust me, I've seen some of the footage and some of the pictures of, you know, you'd be amazed at how easy it is to run a boat up on shore run over well, another boat one's on barkley right now <laughs> that's a big cruise ship what is it oh did you there's a cruise ship that was making a round trip from memphis around up the mississippi and then through lake barkley back to uh nashville i did not see this yeah and uh you know you and i've been on lake barkley lake barkley is about five feet deep from yeah <laughs> <laughs> i've been in the middle of a close not in the middle but 
a good ways from the shore and seen big waves come through and it's a windy day and saw the tops of grass beds in the trough of the waves. Well, you got to think that part of the state. You have to stay in the channel and a lot of that. that. Yeah. I mean, that lake literally, I mean, it might be 20, 25 feet deep in places, but out there in the middle, you're talking about 10 feet yeah, of water. Some places, yeah, four and five feet. And this boat probably drafted so much and it was a big, it's not a huge like. Carnival, Delta Queen or anything? No, it wasn't carnival cruise. It's some kind of yeah, American cruise line or something. And do 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 do, foop, hit a sandbar and it's stuck. Now the Coast Guard's out there with some tugs trying to push it off. Uh, it's I'm supposed gonna, to have been. They're going to check the hole, make sure there's no damage. So far, it's not leaking or anything. It's all good. But I'm going to have to check this out. Yeah, check. That's that. a story that I want to look up. <laughs> it's like, hey, uh, next time in Barkley, those red and you know people don't realize when you're on Kentucky Lake or Barkley, if you see the red and green buoy markers. You need to stay in the middle of them. Yeah, those are much different. Like, so our lakes are kind of split up in three different categories. I mean, not officially, but in my mind. Yeah. We have Laurel and Dale and Cumberland, which are our Highland reservoirs. Yeah. Which are, I mean, maybe 150 feet deep off the, right off the bank. You know, yeah. they just drop down their cliffs. And then you have uh, lakes like Taylorsville and Nolan and Green that are, you know, they aren't Highland reservoirs, but they aren't. Mid-depth, yeah, hilllands, yeah. some people call those hilllands. You're probably talking about, you know, 50, 60 feet deep in places, not not hitting 200 like Harrington or Laurel or mm-hmm. Cumberland or Dale. But then you have Barkley and Kentucky out there in that part of the state. Flatland reservoir. Yeah, flatland. And those things are, I mean, literally, we, we were out there noodling. We were on Kentucky Lake, and we walked the boat. So nobody was in the boat. We were just holding on to the boat and we probably walked it 200 yards you know and never i never got above feet, feet on the bottom feet on the bottom just walking this boat across the lake and i probably never got above mid chest depth you know probably four and a half five feet deep the whole way so that, yeah that's something to keep in mind when you're tubing and things too. yes and, and and then just a real quick reminder there's a saying called red right returning so if you see those keep your red buoy on the right when you're going down lake and then returning it's going to be on your left, red, right, returning. So when you're going up late, rather, you're going upstream, it's going to be on your right. When you come back, it'll be on your left. That's a good point of advice for people who know orientation. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people, I got a feeling, on the water probably. If have... not, stay between the red and the green. Because <laughs> yeah. I've, I've deviated off fishing before, and be like 22 feet, and start looking at the depth finder. And it's like, oh, God, I'm going up a mountain, and it topped off at four and a half feet. Yeah, I mean, a stone's throw away from 22 feet. Talking about, you know, those lakes. So we went out and night fished Cumberland just for fun. Uh, Chad, Kristen, and myself went out there and fished. And, uh, you know, it's so much different fishing from a boat versus fishing from land when you're trying to be on the bottom, especially on a lake like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you got to think, we're, we might be fishing a 45-degree drop. So... When you're on land fishing that drop, it's easy to maintain contact with the bottom because you're getting shallower and shallower and shallower. Oh, heck yeah. But when you're fishing from 50 foot of water, casting into 10 foot of water, and yeah. then working that bait back towards you, you almost want to take up no line. Nope. You know, when you when your bait's on the bottom, you get a little twitch, a little jerk, you get it up and let it fall down. Mm-hmm. If you take up line, it might not touch the bottom again. Again. So you really... Especially on Cumberland or... That's what we were fishing was Cumberland, and I mean we had a pretty good night. It, Kristen struggled a little bit out there, and I think that's why. I think that she just has less experience fishing from a boat to the bank on steep drops and trying to maintain contact with the bottom because that was the name of the game that night. And if you what y'all catch? Smallmouth uh, spots, largemouth. We didn't catch any walleye, no trues. Um, we were fishing spinnerbaits, nighttime spinnerbaits which actually they went out and filmed a segment for last night. One of Chad's uh, 
favorite lure manufacturers who made the nighttime spinner baits that he really liked. And, you know, people might think, what, well, you know, what's the difference in a nighttime spinner bait and a daytime spinner bait? Colors for one. It, when you're fishing at night, you want to use dark, dark colors like mm-hmm. a, a black, black, or purple, pur- blue, black yeah. and blue. Because the fish, they aren't gonna, they aren't seeing the bait anyway. They're seeing a silhouette of the bait, and they're reacting to that. Thump, 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 yeah, that's so, in their lateral line. So you, the dark colors provide a better silhouette for nighttime fishing. So the dark colors one, two, like you said, they're attacking the vibration, the thump. So you want a Colorado blade, not a willow blade, yep, because they put off bigger thump. And then also the quality of the swivel that the blade is attached to, the higher quality swivel, the slower you can retrieve that bait. And, and it still st- spins. So you want a high quality swivel so you can retrieve slow, still get thump. You want a dark color so they have a good silhouette to hit. And then also a lot of times at night, those fish are striking the blade. They, they're actually attacking the blade that's spinning with that thump on it. So you want a short arm spinner bait. Mm-hmm. So it sets your bait, your blade as close as possible to the hook. Yeah. So if they strike that blade they're that's spinning, they're more likely to get hooked. So so that that, that company's not making the spinner bait anymore. No, um, Chad couldn't find any of the spinner baits that he wanted uh, or that you know matched what he was using um, before. So he went online and he just bought swivels. He bought blades. He bought. He made his own. Yep. So we did a segment on how to piece together and how to custom create the bait you're looking for, because all those things I just mentioned, you know. The Colorado blade, um, different sizes, the different colors, you know, different colored skirts and short arm versus long arm, mm-hmm. all those things. He couldn't find the combination he was looking for anyway, anywhere. So he basically went on and bought all the parts and built his own. And he did it for about 250 a spinnerbait. Mm-hmm. That's not bad. With, I'm talking Gamagatsu hooks and the best swivels that you the, can get. The top of the line ones are up six, seven, eight dollars a piece, aren't they? Oh, yeah. And you can't even, that's the point, you couldn't even find the top of the line ones for this style of fishing. So we did a segment on uh, how to, you know, think through that process of what you want your bait to be like and how to find the parts and, and build it yourself. And basically, we just did it for night fishing spinner baits. That's a, a good example. Any big ones? Any big fish get caught? Mm-hmm. Well, they did it this last night. Oh, so we okay. built the baits yesterday, filmed that, and then they went and filmed Cumberland, filmed on Cumberland last night. They caught fish. Um, I'm not sure about the quality or anything. I know they got caught out in a thunderstorm, lightning, and plenty of wind. So I got a feeling the cameras probably went in a dry box at some point. So I'll, yeah. well, I'll have to see what, what we got. But it'll be a segment, and I know just the information alone and the how to build part will be useful for people. Catching fish is really just the gravy mm-hmm. on that segment, you know. That's how you hook people into watching it so you can night get Night fishing in Cumberland can be really hit or miss. I mean, I've had great nights, and I've had nights where it's been really slow. We caught about 25 to 30 the night we went. Which That's is, good. Yeah, That's excellent. Pretty good. I mean, we we had a lot more bites we missed. It took me probably two hours to get into the swing of things. I missed my first what three fish. We just took Chad's boat. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, it was just a personal fun trip, so. Let's see. Did I run through my things? Oh, yeah. The one thing I said I wanted to get to is uh, deer season's coming up. Yep. Is that? What, what? I need to look at my calendar here and make sure I know the exact date. I got my Kentucky field calendar. <laughs> see, I'm actually on the wrong month, Lee. I, I'm in there somewhere. One of the pictures of me is in there. It's a little bitty, but I'm in there somewhere. I was, <laughs> there and I was like, hey, that's me. I think I got photo credit on a couple of things. Yeah, you did. So the 4th, September the 4th, is the opening day of archery season this year for deer and turkeys. 
Of course, Wednesday, September 1st, always on September 1st, is opening day of dove season. I'm going to be shooting them. My brother and I are going to do a little oh, thing I, this year. I need to go ahead and request off, request off work that yeah, day. <laughs> yeah, Wednesday, Brooks, I need, a, I need off. So, um, But the 4th, September the 4th. So we're less than two months away from the opening day of archery season. And I said I'm starting my prep work now. I think I'm a little bit late, maybe not compared to some people. Uh, I'm probably about average. Most people who are bow hunters are probably starting to get going right oh, yeah. now. But one thing I did yesterday, last year I wasn't happy with my bow at all. And I bought this my bow that I used last year in a pinch before season. Uh, didn't quite, you know, it was a 29.5 inch draw length. I, I could just tell it wasn't great for me. The sights that were on it, I didn't want to make adjustments mid-season, so I went with them. I hated the sights. For my style of hunting, it was a single pin slider. You know, you're supposed to make an adjustment. Mm-hmm. And for my style of hunting, which I don't have bait or food out for them, and I'm just hunting trails, or and I do a lot of calling, rattling and, and grunting. And a lot of times those deer, when they're coming in, I might, you know, they might, I might see them at 50 yards away. And then they're just marching on a straight line right past me, you know, never stopping at any designated spot. I never can really plan for how far the shot's going to be. Is it going to be 20? Is it going to be 30? Is it going to be 15? Mm-hmm. So the single pin slider just really didn't work for me because I never had time to make those adjustments, you know. So I went to an archery shop yesterday, and I was just kind of looking at, at bows, and I ended up talking to the guys there, and uh, they put me on a, you know, a bow to fit me out and see what my draw length should be. And it should be 32 inches, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I've never even shot a bow with 32-inch draw length before. So they're ordering a, a part for me, and we're going to get the bow to fit me like it should. And I, in my mind right now, I just have a feeling that it's going to be life-changing, shooting a bow that actually fits, fits. me. No, it's just like many things. Golf oh. clubs. Shoes. I mean, it's hard to run well on a pair of shoes that don't fit you. Yeah, it's hard two to sizes sh- too big. It's hard to you know shoot accurately with a, a bow that doesn't fit you, too. So I'm really looking forward to uh, getting a bow that fits me and something I would suggest people do. If you aren't perfectly happy with your bow or if you haven't bow hunted before, you're just getting into it, I would go somewhere with some guys who know what they're doing and get fitted out. And, you know, have somebody walk you through. You now you don't have to give in on price. You don't mm-hmm. have to give in on anything like that. But g- get the fit right. Yeah. I think that is important. No doubt. Shotgun, same way. Yeah, shotgun. Length I mean, of pull is Vitally important. If it's off, you won't shoot well. Everything, too, with rifles. You know, a good, comfortable fit, something that's made for your body is the way to go. So I'm a, I am just feel like a lot of people probably like I was last year, shooting bows that don't quite fit them and aren't getting what they could out of a bow. And Did more, you put a new sight system on there? Oh, I'm I'm going to sell my current bow because uh, I'm, I'm going to have to buy a new bow. I'm not going through another year of shooting a bow that doesn't fit me right. So I'm going to sell my current bow with the sight on it. And it's a good site for somebody who has a designated spot. You know, they could set it at 32 yards if that's where, you know, their mineral site is or if they use corn or something like that. Or they have a trail that crosses right past their stand. You know those distances, it's a great site for you because there's a lot less clutter. Mm-hmm. And single-pin site, there's, there's, you don't get confused. Sometimes, you know, you pull back a, a four-pin or a five-pin site, you got to think that's just one more step there is to think okay, in your okay, mind. that one's for this, that one's yeah. for that. Oh, okay. It becomes instinctual. By, yeah. It becomes instinctual after a while, but there is less clutter and less room for confusion with a single-pin site, plus you can see more. You don't have those other pins in your way, you know, getting in the way of your vision as you're trying to aim at the deer. So there's advantages to a single-pin site, but I would say for my style of hunting, it's just not that conducive. And I think I'd be better off with a site where I – don't have to make any adjustments. I just need to know my distance. You ever use a 
recurve? I have. Um, I've never taken a deer with a recurve. Uh, you know, I got myself in the mindset where I was going to do it for about a year or two there in college. I got a recurve. I practiced with it. I think I probably, I just, I never felt comfortable with it out past 20 yards probably. Um, and so when I was getting ready to hit the woods and I had to make the choice, do I want to take, I took it hunting a few times, but I never, I never even drew back on a deer with it just because, you know, I just felt so much more confident than when I had my buck tag in my pocket. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't willing to watch one walk by at 30, No, <laughs> you know, I needed to take the bow. I could reach out there and at least get, that's not really reaching out and touching them, but. You still have your recur? I don't No, I had a bear. Um, I can't remember which model it was, but it was, it was, you know, a 50 pound recurve, which at my draw length was probably more like 60 or so. Mm-hmm. And I liked it. I like shooting it a lot. It's kind of cool. Um, it's completely different than shooting a regular compound with sights because although there's a lot of feel and a lot of instinct that goes into shooting a regular compound with sights, you're still using sights and you're still have a, a you know, sight alignment, sight picture, all that stuff. But when you're shooting a recurve, I know some people, you know, put, you know, if you, if you knock in the same spot and you put your nose in the same spot, you can kind of use part of that bow's frame or your arrow as a sight in a way. But I feel like the best recurve shooters are just doing it instinctually. Instinctually, yeah. They just have so much feel with that bow and they've shot it so many times. Sometimes they just, yeah. It's kind of like pointing your finger at something or for them. casting, you know. Yeah. I've got a rod. I've got several rods I've had for so long. I can just look at something and I'll place it within six yeah, inches. That's exactly how. That's exactly how it is. Just, just like with a fishing rod. Muscle memory. And I will say this: that a lot of times when I'm making my best cast, right? I'm talking side arm roll cast up under a tree, hitting the you know right on the bank. Mm-hmm. The best cast I make are the ones I do not think about. I no. just look at where I want it to go and I send it me too yeah, but if i sit there and i look at it and i think oh i gotta get under that, that tree, tree you know, then i'll pull it. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I quit doing that i just go in and go, psh. i did you know, there's a saying in golf uh zero swing thoughts under par one swing thought even par two swing thoughts over par well so i, I mean if you're thinking when you're casting it's the same thing it should just be instinctual i'm not much of a golfer but i, w- I will tell you this i did something stupid the other day <laughs> uh, not stupid it was perfectly fine but i i was in my driveway and i just put a brand new line on a reel and um you know one of the things i always it was on a bait caster and so one of the things i wanted to do is get my brake set right so you know you want to let your line you want your bait to naturally fall and then when it hits the ground you don't want your spool to over spool that's how you keep it from backlashing on you so I put the new line on and I tied on the bait I was going to fish with that night and I walked out towards my front yard and I was going to just go out there and, you know, make sure my brake was set right. And there was two people walking down the sidewalk right in front of me, in front of my house. And I saw them and I thought about well, I was getting ready to cast this rod and just, I started thinking, I got nervous and I walked out there to within about 10 people, 10 feet of these people walking down the sidewalk. I reared back and I just sent a cast straight into a tree <laughs> in my front yard. And at that, at that, I've done it. I started thinking those people had to think I was just a lunatic. Yeah, or, <laughs> just walked outside and I sent one. That guy's a little tipsy or something. You know? <laughs> I just sent it straight into a tree. So I felt a little bit ridiculous there. Hey, real quick. Mm-hmm. I've been practicing my uni knot for Bray to fluorocarbon you mm-hmm. like the albright knot albright better, knot. correct that, that's the one i just yeah i can i showed it to chad the other day because he uses the uni also and he said that he thinks that it's probably a easier knot and he felt i really like the, the uni knot's really not that hard no the uni knots where you kind of have two knots and they slide yeah. together yeah yeah this one's all in one i really looking at the knot if you think about how the knot works about how things wrap through each other and cinch down the pressure's coming from the side it's literally squeezing 
the the fluorocarbon or the mono leader mm. with the braid. So it's not putting all the pressure on one pinch point, but you do have a pinch point in the back that's kind of a a fail safe. That, yeah. It's really hard. This probably doesn't come across audio well, but I can tie it easily and quickly, you know, with my fishing rod hanging by my side or something like that. And it's a completely tagless knot, so you don't you can cast through your eyelets with it. Yeah, I like the Albright knot, and honestly, I would. That's the next question I had: was Do you use glue on your Albright knot? Do you ever glue? No, no. Do you know of people that do like the Uni knot? I do not. I I I don't know a lot of people that tie the Albright knot. I think it's probably more popular elsewhere. I think most people around here use the Uni knot. I, I wish I could explain how to do it. Well, I mean, I can. You take your leader material, you make a loop, you go through that loop with your main line, you wrap it around six times, and you wrap it around six times going back down the same direction, then you go back through the loop, same direction you went in originally, and you just pull it tight, cinch it down. Um, but it's, And you can, you can chop it clean? Chop it clean. And that's really something that people would need to go online to figure out how yeah, to Yeah, I do need that. to learn that one. But I'm getting pretty good at uni. The uni yeah. knot's good. I, I have no problems with the Albright knot. So I would look into it. There's so, so Do you many. You always use monofilament uh, backing. A backing? Yeah, just to keep it from slipping. Or do no, you just I tape, tape it? it. Do you tape it? Yeah. And what Lee's asking about right now is braid on a spool. You can, if you just put braid on your spool, you say you tie a knot and you have your braid tied to your spool, like you do with mono or fluoro. That braid is so slick that a fish can spin your entire yeah, spool. Yeah, you won't make any progress because you're. The line spinning on your spool. Yeah, it will literally spin. Say you have 150 yards of line on your spool, <laughs> and then you got 50 yards out to the fish. That fish will literally spin that line on your spool. Mm-hmm. So, but all all it takes is the smallest bit of pressure to keep the line on the spool. So Lee was saying, do you use mono because mono doesn't slip? So you just put 10 feet of mono on and then tie your braid to it. What I do is I just take a piece of of masking tape or scotch tape. And I just... I've heard people using electrical tape. That's what Mike Pardon said he Any used. of them work. I mean, it literally... I've just been using... Because usually I've had mono or copolymer on there. Oh. I leave 50 yards on there, and, and I like it to be, you know, within a dime width of the pool, of the spool lip. So i just been doing it that way. You know, that's a good idea. I might look into doing that again. Uh, it'll well, prob- some of those big spools, like with ocean stuff... You know, um, you know, you hell, it can hold 245 yards of, yeah. of 12 pound line. So, yeah. I just do backing. Then Chad does that to save on fluoro, and I've done that too. I might use start cheap mono as backing, and then put 60, 80 yards of fluoro. I on. might start doing that just because the uh, braid's a little high. I mean, I buy usually. Say I'm going to spool up a rod right now to go fishing tomorrow, and I need a different kind of line. I'm going to go get 150 yards of. Power braid, braided power pro or suffix or one of those brands and i'm going to uh you know take my old line off and put that on and then as i get knots and i lose baits and i retie i'm going to start chipping away at how much line i have on my spool mm-hmm. and once i get to below two-thirds of a spool i have to go back and get all new line and redo that whole process again but you could use cheap monofilament backing and make fill that gap because i really probably only ever need 75 yards of yeah of line for i use a uni knot on both ends uni knot to mono and then uni knot to my floral leader i would say i probably only need 75 yards of line for most fishing like lake fishing and creek fishing i think i could probably get away with that but on the ohio river no doubt no i i like every inch of line i can possibly i've got 150 yards and i did a little backing with i mean i'm talking 300 yards out there that's what a lot of people for certain setups, they want 
that fish to be able to run almost out of sight and them still have it hooked up. And most of the time you lose it anyway, but it makes you feel better. Yeah. Yeah. You got anything else you wanted to hit on, Lee? I, I, well, so basically the deer season prep I was talking about, you know, people are looking to get ready for archery season, you know, get yourself fitted out. If you don't already have a bow you're comfortable with, maybe think about how making those adjustments can make you better. Because I did. I mean, I got plenty of deer last year, but mm-hmm. I was not as confident as I had been oh, yeah. in the past. You and know, if you buy a shotgun, I had a shotgun and I ended up trading it off that the stock just did not fit my length of pull. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, you don't, it was actually too short. So it would slip down to my second knuckle and then it just, then it just, it didn't do. Yeah. So, so get fitted out or, you know, make sure you're comfortable, practice a lot, mm-hmm. practice, practice, practice with your bow. It should be almost second nature to you, even with a compound to shoot. Uh, obviously, you know, you don't want to get out there and struggle. Shoot in low light, shoot from a standing position, shoot from an elevated position, shoot to where from it's a sitting. instinctual, just like casting. Yeah. You be, be comfortable. Say, I could sit my butt right on the ground and make a shot. I could be 30 feet up and I could make a shot. Like, you know, practice through all those hunting situations because if you just stand there and you just shoot a paper at one distance or shoot at a target at, you know, 20, 30, and 40 yards, what are you going to do when that deer walks out at 35? You, I hope you practice that. Mm-hmm. I hope you know exactly how to how to split your sights or how to make an adjustment. You know, you don't want to just practice it where you're both sighted in. You want to practice it the in between yardages. You want to shoot further than you're actually going to shoot in the field. You know, if you want to be good to 40 yards in the field with your bow, shoot at 60. Mm-hmm. You know, things like that. And then also, uh, you know, I guess aside from actually putting an arrow in the deer, the other main big thing is finding the deer. You got to find a deer before you can put an arrow in it, Lee. No doubt. So get out there and look around the woods. I yeah. mean, it's time to start looking now, isn't it? Well, I mean, as we get into August, especially antlers are pretty well developed right now. I saw a buck uh, run across here at the game farm leaving work yesterday. Yeah, little I mean, little basket rack, but but I mean, the antler you can see what a deer is going to be. I wouldn't be surprised if eighty percent of the deer in the state have all of their tines on their main beams. You know, they're still growing length yeah. and things like that, but. You can really tell what you have, and it's a good time of year to get out and find sign. You when know, does velvet form? When is does it, it? Is it on now? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. I mean, it, the horns start growing in velvet, so they when they start. And then in September is when they rub it off, right? Yeah, late September, or late August, early September. Kentucky's one of the only states that gives you an opportunity to hunt velvet deer, which is kind of nice. How our season falls, we're actually a destination state for a lot of people. I mean, we get a lot of pictures for the calendar every year of velvet deer. Well, there are a lot of states. I can't tell you which ones you can and which ones you can't right now. But a lot of states, season doesn't open until well after velvet has dropped. So people never have an opportunity to take a deer in velvet. That's why one one reason people come to Kentucky to hunt is, uh, you know, just an earlier season opportunity. And especially, you know, if somebody lives in Tennessee and they're just a die. I don't know when Tennessee season opens. Say somebody lives in a bordering state and they're just a diehard bow hunter they're one of those people that just dreams about it all year long well they probably have the itch to go in september you know and they might not be able to where they're at so those diehard people who really just want to hunt i'll go i'm gonna go hunting this weekend i just got to go to kentucky to do it so yeah you know take a look at our wmas if you're looking for a place to hunt don't be afraid to ask permission in early season like that you know especially you'll have it to yourselves a lot of times well our early season is probably one of the most productive times to hunt that first week of september you know if those bucks are still in velvet they're easier to hunt because when they shed their velvet that's when patterns completely change basically what our deer here do 
is you can get them on a real nice daytime pattern right now. You can run trail cameras, you can find bucks, and they're going to do the same thing just about every day. They're going to be in bachelor groups. They're going to have a daytime routine. And then when that velvet sheds, it sheds because of hormone levels changing in their body. And those hormone levels cause those deer to become nocturnal. Mm -hmm. And that's why late September is typically our lowest harvest because those bucks are just sitting still all day and they have a nighttime routine. And then as pre-rut comes in, you know, mid-October through all of the rut through November, they just go crazy. The hormones, you know, make them, make them go insane and they're running around everywhere there in the daytime. That's when they become easy to hunt again. But the very first start of the season, early September is probably your best chance to get on a buck for the first two months of, or the first month and a half of season. I would, if you, if you said, Chase, I'll give you the first week of bow season or the five weeks after you have to pick one, one of those two, I would probably take the first week of season. Yeah. Eh, maybe not five weeks after, maybe, maybe three or four, mm-hmm. you know, but through the end of September, it's traditionally very slow, but if you can get on them early, put a pattern together this time of year, locate a buck year after, if you locate a buck right now or in a week or in two weeks and you have them showing up there in daytime, there's a pretty good chance that first week of September, you can catch them doing that same thing. But then after that, all your scouting might go out the window yeah. because he's going to completely change his routine. So that's, that's, you know, early season hunting. I've never been successful at early season hunting. So take that with a grain of salt, everything I just said, mm-hmm. I've never killed a buck in velvet, but, um, I know a lot of people who do, and I agree with them that it is a really productive time to be in the woods. Are the hybrids, um, with, are they doing good now? Well, late summer is a good hybrid time. We call this grind time. <laughs> this is when it's hard. Yeah. that's why. <laughs> So, so. It, in October, it'll pick back up again. Oh, yeah. Right? When the water temperatures start dipping down, it'll pick back up. They'll make another run, fall run, maybe. Even. That day in October last year was fun. Yeah, and the white bass do it too. There's a fall run for the white yeah. bass. A lot of people don't take advantage of it. It's just like the spring run for white bass. Mm-hmm. You can go catch them in the headwaters at Taylorsville and Nolan and Dix and all those places. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know yeah. a lot of people have caught them in the fall and hybrids too and on Taylorsville. If you like the Salt River white bass run in the spring, like you really like it, your number one complaint about it might be the crowd, the number of people. That's the only thing I can see worth that you know that anybody could ever have a complaint about. You can go doing the exact same thing in the fall, and trust me, nobody's gonna be there because it's like the fall, the spring run is an event. It's well known, but mm-hmm. for some reason, the fall run just kind of slips everybody's mind. When is the what time of the fall? I would say October. I would say you're probably looking for water temperatures similar to what you're looking for in the spring. Maybe it's photo. That's a that's a fisheries biologist question. That's something to ask fisheries biologists. I could get on my phone and, you know, it's it's weird. I kind of use my phone as a guide to what's going on right now. And I'll just get on my my photo album and I'll just scroll through looking at you know where it shows you the date up in the top right. And when I see around right now's date, so say I scroll through and I went to July, mid July of last year, the year before. And I can just see what fish are being caught, you know. So it kind of gives me an idea for what's coming up and what's hot. But I could do the same thing for the, the fall run for the hybrids and the white bass, but I don't want to speculate. I think that's something we get a fisheries biologist in here for. We ask them about that run. Is it a spawning run? Is it a, why are they doing it? Like, what's the purpose of it? Mm-hmm. I don't think they're spawning that time of year. Uh, is it the photo period or is it water Could be probably photo period. Yeah, those are all questions for a biologist. So maybe we need to nail one of those guys down and yeah. get them I'd in like, That'd be interesting. I would actually like to know about that because I know about the fall run, but I'm not 100%. I, I don't really know the mechanics of it, why it works the way it does. So, Lee, I am. Uh, I haven't cut my grass in two weeks. 
the rain's just been, you know. So that's on my list. I cut mine Saturday, but my low mower is leaking oil. So, but it was free. So, mine was free also. Yeah. But anyway, Lee, I say we call it quits for now. Cool. Turn this around, get it out there. I keep editing on my piece for a little bit, then I'm going to go enjoy the weekend. Go enjoy it. Well, I appreciate it. I'm going to. Hopefully, I can get to float Sunday. Well, thanks for stopping by. No problem.